Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Just a quick warning to say the following episode does contain some strong language, which some listeners may find offensive. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to You Really Shouldn't Have with me, James Warwick, the podcast where each week I sit down with a different guest as we discuss their career and the story behind the worst gift they've ever been given. Joining me on this episode is Lucas Cantor. Lucas is a composer, producer, multi-instrumentalist and speaker who's worked on a number of composition projects for film and television as well as completing Schubert's 8th Symphony, The Unfinished Symphony, with the help of artificial intelligence. He joins me to discuss his career and, of course, the worst gift he's ever been given. So, Lucas, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, in terms of music, where did that all begin? Was that an interest from an early age or was it something that developed slightly later? I've always been interested in music. I think uh, my mom used to play... I declined enough music for me as I went to sleep. And so I listened to Mozart obsessively, I guess, when I was a kid and it was my favorite piece of music. I could apparently sing it, sort of sing along with it when I was very young, the whole thing, all, um, every movement of it. And, uh, and so I guess I, I started to sort of have a predilection for music when I was young, but I didn't study it with any earnestness until I was a teenager. I started playing guitar when I was about 14 and I started taking guitar seriously probably when I was about 18, and then I went to music uh, university. When I was younger, before I went to college, I was, I guess I wasn't really that serious about it. I i took up guitar. I got, I don't want to say good at it, but, you know, fairly good at it um, enough to play in a band, and it just seemed like a recreational activity for me. I didn't have any musicians in my um, immediate family. Uh, any uh, Other than my older sister was a professional recorder, is a professional recorder player who plays Baroque Oh, wow. music. And so even though that's amazing and she's a musician and she's an artist and I now see her as a peer, it didn't seem like a model for me at the time because I played, you know, jazz guitar. <laughs> and, um, and so I thought, well, if I want to be a professional musician, I have to learn how to play music. That's, you know, 400 years older than the music I'm already learning how to play. That's already 50 years old. <laughs> um, so I, uh, so I didn't take it. I didn't think of it as a career path. And so I just played in bands and just kind of enjoyed it and went to college for what I guess was probably going to be political science um, oh, okay. or, or English or something. And, uh, and I got a, a scholarship to play on the lacrosse team, which is, I don't know if you guys have lacrosse in the UK, but it's an awesome sport. I know, I know um, of it. It's, it's not huge here, but I know of lacrosse. It's not even huge here. It's just like, <laughs> it's just a brutal, it's just a brutal sport that, you know, Northeastern private school kids play. So, um, and uh, so I, I played on the team and I was, I went there for a semester and I found that I found a band when I was there, I got in a band and I found that I was spending all of my free time playing in this band and writing music for this band and that my studies weren't very rigorous or very challenging or very rewarding. And uh, the big, the big issue for me was that I really liked playing lacrosse and I made the calculation that, you know, in four years or 10 years, I could still be playing music, but I won't be able to play lacrosse. There's no such thing as professional. At the time, there was no such thing as professional lacrosse. So, um, you know, I said, my best case scenario is that I end up coaching lacrosse. And that wasn't something that I was very interested in doing. So, uh, so yeah, so I switched to a, to a music college and studied jazz and got a four-year degree in jazz performance on the guitar. 
Nice. Now, I know you've moved into TV and film compositions. Was that always an ambition early on in sort of your music career? No. Uh, like most people, I, I wasn't even aware that that was a job that someone could do for a long time. So I, uh, my, I guess the story of me becoming a professional musician is a story of my horizons broadening over time. Uh, I couldn't have, I, I didn't even know that what I do now was something that someone could do even, you know, even 10 years ago and certainly not 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, and so, so I started, uh, I started working for NBC sports when I was in college. I started, I got hired to work as an intern at the Olympics and that was, that's another story, but it was basically just dumb luck. Like I just met some guy at the right time and they happened to need someone and it was just dumb luck. And so I there got exposed to music for television and music in sports. I had never thought that there was music in sports, even though it's obvious that there is, but you don't really think about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I, uh, so I started uh, just being exposed to that more and working on the music services side of that. And after a while I realized, and this was what I was doing outside of after college, I was teaching guitar and part-time working for NBC. And then I realized that, uh, you know, I thought, you know, I play guitar, I have access to a recording studio and we're going to get into the access to a recording studio when we talk about my gift. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, we had, a, and I realized, you know, I could make this music. Why don't I just like have a, uh, to put it in British terms, why don't I just have a go at it and very good, see, very good. um, and see, and see how I do. And, uh, and the first, I did an album of what we in the U S call sports rock, which is basically, you know, drums, guitar, and bass. And that goes under highlights. So if you watch, um, you know, proper football or United States football or, uh, you know, baseball, you'll see like in between innings or in between, uh, halftime, they'll show highlights from around the league. Yeah. And underneath, underneath that is music that you, most people, normal people would never even notice. It's, it's just kind of there to, you know, for the same reason that there's music in a shopping mall. Right. And, um, but all of that is subject to royalties and there are company. And so as a composer, you get paid to make that music and you can get paid over and over again, over again as it gets used. And so my first album, while musically is probably not the most successful thing I've ever done. It, it did, it did make quite a bit of money. So um, because it got into that system and it got used and you know, it's, it, it did fairly well. And so at that point I realized that maybe writing music for television was something that I could do. And, um, and then all I knew about it was doing music for sports, but then I, uh, man, you know what, now that I real, now I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, this is actually all related to my gift because I sort of had all these revelations, um, about how I could change my, um, how I could change my life and how I could change my career at the same party where okay. I got this gift that I'm going to tell you about. Can we go so, now? Let's yeah. do it. Let's do it way earlier than we normally do. Oh my God. What is the worst right. gift you've ever been given? So we're sort of up to the point where this party happens, right? So I'm working in, a, in New York and I'm working for a couple of different companies at the time. And one of them is a tech startup. And I'm not going to name it because I'm going to tell a story about someone who gave me a really terrible <laughs> gift. Um, but, uh, but they had a Christmas party. They were really lovely people. And they had a, uh, it was a tech company and they had a recording studio. And so the first year that I worked there, maybe the second year that I worked there, but the first year that I went to the Christmas party, uh, it was a very small company, and the gift at that year's Christmas party was um, an envelope, and in the envelope was eight hundred dollars. Oh, nice! Fantastic nice. gift, right? <laughs> it's great gifts. Who does not like hundred dollar bills as a gift, right? And for me, 
um, I got a special gift that year from the CEO. Um, he gave me a key to the recording studio and said, you know, from about 6 p.m. to 10 a.m., I'm not in there, so don't break anything. And that was really what allowed me to learn how to be a musician because you really need that kind of access to professional equipment in order to learn how to use it. And so that was that was probably the best Christmas gift I ever got, which made the next Christmas all the more <laughs> hilarious. So uh, flash forward to the following Christmas and uh, there had been a new CFO. We're at the same party in the same place, uh, but the CEO is not there because he's off, uh, you know, gallivanting around the world doing something. Um, and uh, we get, um, I'm sorry, I should just flash back to the other Christmas where he gave me a key to the studio and he told me about Hans Zimmer's studio in Hollywood where oh. I realized, like I didn't even know that Hans Zimmer had a studio. I didn't know that pe- composers in Hollywood made so much money, but Hans Zimmer has sort of like a, it's almost like a composer farm where all these younger composers work in a building that he provides for him, learn from him, and then eventually go out on their own. No way. And I thought... Yeah, it's amazing. And it's a, it's an amazing, you know, a lot of the great television and film scores uh, of the last 20 years have been done by people who come out of that system. John Powell, uh, Steve Toblonsky, who does all the Transformers movies, um, Ramin Dejawi, who did the first Iron Man and scored Game of Thrones. I, I could go on and on and on and on and on. It's just all the A-list people sort of go through this system. And so I didn't know that it existed. And at this, at this uh, party, yeah, I got $800, a key to the studio, and sort of a like my world expanded and uh, sort of a, a goal for the next couple of years for me to get to this place to remote control, which is Hans Zimmer studio. All right. So back to the, uh, the following party, the new CFO, you know, tightening, doing some purse tightening. We're all, we're all thinking, okay, we're probably not going to get envelopes full of cash, but maybe we'll get a raise or we'll, you know, we'll get something. And I was kind of counting on it at the time. And so I get a, uh, a little box, you know, about, about, uh, you know, like the size of like a, a five, piece of paper right okay and i uh uh i open it up and we sort of open them all together and inside is two tiny desk size framed photographs and they are those like office inspirational posters one of them is a little cat hanging on a ledge with a quote that says hang in there and then another one is just sort of a nondescript picture of the sky that says your attitude is also often related to your altitude in life. And everyone and got the same. Everyone got like different versions oh. of that. <laughs> so, and, and they were also, they also like, it wasn't like they were nicely framed. It looked like he went and bought, you know, a hundred picture frames at, you know, the, the Chinese market in, in Chinatown and like printed these out on his printer and just fr- had his assistant frame them. That's what it looked like. Um, it just could not have been done with less care or less effort. And I also, you know, it was such a bad gift that I was like, why did you even invite me to this fucking party? <laughs> like I could have just gotten drunk at my house. <laughs> so, so I'm guessing you didn't frame them. They, they didn't make it onto, onto your desk anywhere. Well, what I did actually, um, <laughs> and I don't know if I'm proud of this, but I'm a little proud of it. But so I, uh, because they were so janky, uh, they were pretty easy to mess with. And so I went online and I found a picture of, uh, I found a picture of a man about to hang himself. And so I superimposed that on the one that said, hang in there. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, the one that said your attitude is often related to your altitude or maybe it's the other way around, but your altitude is often related to your attitude in life. I found a picture of a man like contemplating jumping off of a bridge. <laughs> 
And so, and those did sit on my desk for a little while. <laughs> so you found a use for it. That's fantastic. I did. Yeah. I, I found them to be kind of funny. And you know what? Until you sent me an email asking me to think about this months ago. And I was freaking out because I was like, I can't think about anything. I don't know if I've ever really gotten a bad gift. And this came to me like last night as I was oh, wow. falling asleep. I remembered this. <laughs> so, What a bit of luck that was. How, how could you forget? Yeah. How could you forget such a gift? <laughs> I, it was too traumatic. I mean, it was also like I was young at the time and I was legitimately counting on getting some money for this Christmas bonus because I had gotten it the previous year. And so I was also like, in addition to thinking that this was such a stupid gift. I was like, well, fuck, I'm, I'm out $800. I don't know what to... <laughs> Moving back to your time with NBC, I wondered what kind of brief you got um, in terms of when you were approached about different projects, i.e. the Olympics, and I know you've done some stuff with the MLS as well. How much mm. of a brief are you getting? Are they saying we need X pieces of music, this sort of length and it needs to sound a bit like this or are they just saying lucas you know what you're doing go for it uh only in the last like year has that (laughs) second thing been um uh yeah has that ever been a brief for me in in the last you know that's sort of the goal is to get to the point where they're like yeah lucas you know what you're doing go for it but even then on the the high profile project those are often low budget projects that, that, that say that to me um uh but the my job for the Olympics and my job for MLS are were, are completely different. So for the Olympics, um, I handle music services, which is uh, like cue sheets for the most part, and it, it's not glamorous. They do use my music because I have access to the producers, and th- they have it, and some of them like it, and so they use it. But um, I, I'm not doing bespoke music for the Olympics. Um, okay. I'm really just helping out with the effort. Uh, so for um, MLS, uh, Fox called me. So it's for a different network. Fox called me up and gave me some pretty specific direction. We went through a bunch of different versions uh, over the course of a couple of months, which was great because it was a bit of a COVID project. Mm. And um, and eventually they picked one, and then they and then they ran with it. And they inevitably picked the one that I was the the least sure about. <laughs> so I was, um, you know, they, we did we did I don't know I think six like fully produced versions of a theme for MLS with, you know, that just sounded awesome and like big sports, cool, you know, cool music. And I really liked all of them. And this, the one that ended up going was that they asked for, you know, this is sort of the inevitable direction when um, sometimes when clients don't know what they want is like, we want it to be more modern. You know, we want it to be more modern, like, you know, like EDM and like dubstep, like, you know, I mean, I mean, yeah, they say dubstep as if, you know, dubstep was 10 years ago, but like they they want it to be more, more modern. And, And this was, this producer, uh, you know, specifically referenced some like actual like contemporary bands and some of whom I didn't even know I had to look up. And, <laughs> and so I, uh, so I thought like, usually when a composer like me gets that, you know, we just, we have hip hop type samples. We've all kind of heard hip hop, but it's not a passion of mine. And so you end up with uh, what I call composer hip hop, which is just a beat <laughs> under some music, <laughs> you know? And so I thought, you know what? I don't want to do that. So I'm going to go, I, I used to have a recording studio with a bunch of EDM guys who were fairly notable. And so I called one of them and said, Hey, can you help me out with this? We've got a little bit of a budget. Can you, you know, help me do this? And so I got a, um, uh, I got a really legit like touring EDM artist to sort of EDM up the orchestral track that me and my writing partner had done. And 
I heard it and I was like, this is awesome. I, I can't imagine they're going to like it though. Because <laughs> um, it's just it's just weird. Like it's too weird. It's too much. I, I, and so of course I send that to them and that's the one they pick. <laughs> so Fantastic. You talk about going through multiple versions there. I wondered like project to project, how many drafts are you having today? It depends on the project. So for, uh, for the Unfinished Symphony, which was a big project I did, that was, you know, um, and generally for things that go on a stage, I internally do many, many drafts, but the clients just gets what I give them basically. Um, and I had a, the, the Unfinished Symphony, I had this particularly stressful moment. Um, you know, we're at Abbey Road, the orchestra is about to rehearse. And, I re- and I'm sitting there with executives from Huawei who have paid me a very handsome sum for this piece of music. And I realized like, shit, I hope they like it. Like they haven't heard anything <laughs> and they're about to play it. And if they don't like it, like that's it. I, we can, it can't be changed now. The concert's in three days. So, um, and uh, luckily they did, but there's also a bit of a psychological thing where like, if you pay a lot of money for something and it's done professionally, you're probably going to like it. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, so there's that. And then for television and for film, sometimes I go through, I've, I've gone up to 20 revisions on something. Oh, wow. Yeah. You mentioned the unfinished symphony there and I was going to move on to it. So it's very nice that you set me up there because obviously you finished Schubert's eighth symphony, the unfinished symphony using artificial intelligence. So I wondered how you got involved in the project in the first place. And what other than you wondering if they'd like it or not, what the biggest challenges were that you faced during that project? Um, well, there were a lot of challenges during that project. The the first one was time. They they called me in, I think December, and the concert was the first week of February. Oh wow! In London, <laughs> so and I, I just I live in Los Angeles, so um, so that was uh that was a challenge. And they also called me because the, you know the model that they were using didn't seem to be working. It needed some direction. So, um, and they also had. To, to Huawei's credit, they are really fantastic creative partners, and um, they, or at least the you know the part of the company that I've worked with, and they are, I, I would say their biggest skill, and this is probably just from being in the tech world, is is knowing what they don't know, and so if that makes sense, so like I would explain, you know, there are all these intricacies to hiring an orchestra and to writing for an orchestra, and a lot of it is expensive, and the expenses don't make a lot of sense unless you know what these people are doing. Like you know, music copying, for example, is pretty expensive and it's hard to even explain to someone, you know, there, there are some clients that would say, well, why don't you just print it from your computer? And the answer is, well, there's just more to it. that Like I, I can't explain to you why <laughs> just trust me that I can't. Um, so like if you knew, if I could explain it to you, like if you had enough information for me to explain it to you, you wouldn't be asking the question. Yeah. So, um, so stuff like that with Huawei, they really just, they really trusted me. You know, they, I had a reputation. They knew that I'd done this before. And when I said like, I need you to pay this person in London to do this thing for me. Cause that's the person I need. They basically didn't ask any questions. They just, they just did it. And they, they just expected that I would deliver them a, a great product and they kind of gave me free reign to do it. And so that is the, that was the best thing about that project. The challenge, as I said, was time. And, uh, it was also Huawei has some political, um, at the time had some political, uh, you know, issues in the UK and it was a little bit difficult to find an orchestra. Um, because a lot of the professional orchestras, uh, in, in the UK have funders that were politically opposed to whatever Huawei was doing. But, um, but we were able to get like an A-list orchestra and it was fine. 
but uh, but it was but that was another thing that I kind of had to step in and manage because you know they don't have any experience. You know, if you're ask someone who doesn't live in this world to find an orchestra, they're just going to go to the London Symphony Orchestra, and then if the London Symphony Orchestra says no, you don't really know what to do after that. <laughs> um, so, uh, but we figured it out. Um, and the uh, the way I got involved in that was simply. I have a friend in the UK who is a computer scientist and we had just had a lot of conversations about, uh, about AI and music and the nature of, you know, how we just had a lot of just sort of late night boozy conversations about this over the years. And he got, uh, he got this job with Huawei and realized at some point that he needed a composer to sort of help finish the, um, to help get it from the computer's, you know, melodic ideas to a stage. And, uh, and they chose me. So yeah, that's the, that's the story. I know you've done a TEDx talk on the subject of artificial intelligence and creativity. And mm. I wondered in terms of music and music, music technology, where do you see the future of all of that going as we move forward? Cause obviously it's evolving, you know, every single day. So where do you yeah. see the future of all of that going? That's a, that's a good question. There's a couple different directions that AI music could go. One is that it could be a fad and it could just turn into a sort of esoteric thing that people do and maybe a very small audience listens to it occasionally, like music concrete or like, you know, the sort of John Cage pieces of the of the twenties where they're they're interesting to academics, but they're not really popular or performed. Um and the other direction is that AI could start replacing some of the uh, what, what I would call like B-level music in the world. And by that, I mean exactly the music I was describing to you earlier, the kind of music that is there just to fill space, the kind of music that's in the background of a shopping mall, um, the kind of music that you really don't pay attention to. Uh, because there is, AI is already capable of producing that kind of music okay. and, and already does to some degree. And there is, there is about a billion dollars annually to be made from that market. So, the incentive is there for tech companies to create AI that can do that. Um, and the, uh, and the technology is there, but nobody has really figured it out yet. And the, the other, the other future of AI music is in content creation. I mean, if you are, uh, if you are using music in your podcast, for example, and let's say you have one of those podcasts where you have music kind of under the whole thing, right? Like a, um, like, like a bed. Yeah. Like a bed, right. You know, you have a, you have maybe, maybe you have like not the most interesting speaker, uh, not the most interesting guest and you put a bed under them and I can provide you music if you want to do a bed under me. Um, but, uh, but if you don't really care that much what that music is, you know, if you're going to use a library track that isn't noticeable and isn't going to evoke any kind of emotion anyway, you may as well just use something that is created for free by AI and companies like anchor FM or any company that, thrives on content has an incentive to be able to provide that kind of music to you. And they're all trying. So, um, you know, uh, an AI music company that I, uh, I didn't really, I haven't really worked with them, but I know all these guys, uh, pretty well called Amper sold to Shutterstock a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. And I don't know exactly what Shutterstock's doing with it, but that my guess is that it's what I described where you can get, uh, some stock video. And if you want some music under it, yeah, you can just it. get kind of generic music under it. And, and their, um, their algorithm, uh, Amper is interesting because they, they use all live instruments, so all the samples they use. So, so this stuff sounds really good. So, um, but you know, it's still AI music. And I talked to, uh, the, the guy who 
was really developing it that I knew was someone who I met at Hans Zimmer studio and later moved on to do that. And he said, you know, sometimes I do feel like I'm putting musicians out of work, but I also feel like part of my job is to make this sound as good as possible so that I can set the bar so that, you know, like if you're going to do this, you have to do it well. Yeah. And I really respect that, that, uh, that viewpoint. And, and he's a, and, 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 I, and he, I think he accomplished that. So, um, so yeah, I think the future of it is, is going to be replacing some of that music. The other thing is that in theory, an, an AI composer should be able to make music that has more, um, that has more relation, that's more relatable to you than a human composer in a moment. Because, you know, if you think about it, if you're wearing a, you know, if you've got an Apple watch or something on, right, it's got it's taking your biometric data. It can probably tell your mood based on your heart rate and your, you know, the oxygen, oxygen, oxidation of your blood, whatever, uh-huh. you know, whatever that word is. And, um, and so if that data were, you know, synced to a cloud, for example, the, an AI who was composing music in real time could really cater it to your mood in the moment. And if an entire audience of people were, re- were wearing, uh, uh, you know, wearable devices and all of that data was synced to an AI in real time. It could write a piece that would cater to the like aggregate feeling of the entire audience. That's so incredible. The, yeah. The, there's no reason why what I'm describing can't be done. It's, it's just computing power bandwidth and the desire for someone to do it. Um, so, so there's a, and I don't know if there is a desire to make a composer that is an incredible, concert music composer because I don't know how that would make any money. Um, so other than as an attraction, you know, as an oddity, there's, you know, but, but for what I described for the sort of B level music, the background music, there is, there is some money there and uh, the technology's there, the market is there and it's only a matter of time. And I will tell you, I'll be the first person, this will be the first place that I've uh, actually announced this. I'm pretty sure that I've cracked the code of how to do it well. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, you know, we'll see if I actually do it. But I think I figured out the missing ingredient. Now, Lucas, two gift-related questions I ask everybody that comes on this show. If you could go back to your childhood and rescue something you had that you don't have anymore, that you'd want again, what would you rescue? Huh. So I am pretty compulsive about throwing stuff out. Oh no, I know. I know. I know exactly what I would rescue. Um, so I sold a guitar, uh, my first, you know, real guitar that I had, I sold it to one of my students when I was uh, in college because I wanted to get another guitar basically. Okay. And, uh, I would rescue it only because I, I don't think, uh, well, oh, we're, we're on the radio, but I am sitting next to about 25 guitar related instruments that I play. And so it's a bit of a compulsion, but it's also, uh, like, I don't think you should sell instruments. You know, I think you buy an instrument, that's your instrument for life. And when you die, it goes and lives another life with someone else. And so I would, uh, so that guitar was originally a gift to me uh, from my parents and uh, I sold it and I would go back and get it if I could. If you could go right back to the beginning of your career and give mm-hmm. yourself a gift to help to get where you are now, what gift would you give yourself? To help get where I was, oh man, $800 and a key to a recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> Hands down. <laughs> brilliant lucas finally where can people find out more about you and what you do 
the best way to reach me if you want to have a conversation with me is through my website, which is lucascantermusic.com. And you can email me there and it goes right to my email. And if you want to uh, interact with me on social media where I very infrequently and sporadically post things and sometimes uh, answer things, that's uh, my Instagram is lucasdcanter. Fantastic. Well, Lucas, thanks so much for stopping by the show. It's been great to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode. You can find us on both Twitter and Instagram at Bad Gifts Pod, as well as online at badgiftspod.com.